Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning once again thankful for the unspeakable privilege that we have of hearing you speak to us through your word. And yet we confess, Father, that we oftentimes come before you with cluttered hearts, with hearts filled and weighed down with the cares of this world. And so, Father, we pray this morning that you would give us the grace to cast our cares on you, knowing because of the promise of your word that you care for us. So we pray that you'd give us the humility now in this moment to transfer those burdens onto you, knowing that we are not able to bear them anyway. Open our eyes to see that that is true. And, and, and in that action, may our ears be unplugged and may our hearts be open wide to receive what your word has to say to us. So that, Father, this would not just be a mere transfer of information, but rather an act of worship in which we are drawn into a closer and deeper relationship both with you and with one another. We ask that you would do this in our midst for the sake of your own glorious name and for the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this morning we pick up where we left off last week in our study of the book of Galatians. And in our passage this morning, what we find is that Paul has reached a, a point of transition in his argument. And what he's transitioning to here is an explanation of the very nature of the gospel. And the reason that's important for us to know is because up until this point, Paul has been seeking to show the Galatians, as he says in verse 11 of chapter 1, how his gospel is not from men, but from God. And the reason Paul feels compelled to show the Galatians this is because they have strayed from the gospel. 
And you see, they have strayed from the gospel because they had believed false teachers who were saying that Paul's gospel is false and that his apostleship is a sham. And so Paul is writing to the Galatians then to give them proof that his gospel and his apostleship are in fact genuine. And over the past few weeks, what we've been looking at is how Paul has been doing that proving the genuineness of his apostleship and his gospel to the Galatians by relaying to them some of his own personal history. And so that's why he's shown them that he was at first a a persecutor of the church, one who, who actually put Christians to death. But then on the road to Damascus, Jesus, the glorified Christ, the Messiah, appeared to Paul. And Paul was converted on the spot and called to be an apostle of Jesus the Messiah. And then later on, he was recognized by the Jerusalem apostles as being a true apostle himself and also a true gospel preacher. And then last week, what we saw was that Paul had apostolic authority that was co-equal with Peter because of how he rebuked him. In Antioch. That's what Paul has shown the Galatians so far in order to authenticate both his apostleship and his gospel. And what we find in our passage here this morning is that Paul is continuing his address to Peter in Antioch. In other words, Paul's rebuke of Peter didn't end at verse 14, even though that's where the, the um, quotation marks stop in most of our English translations, unless you're reading from the NIV this morning. Because remember, keep in mind that the original Greek text doesn't have quotation marks. Because back then, the the Greeks didn't use punctuation. And so as a result, when translators look at a Greek text, it's often easy to tell where a quotation starts. But it's very difficult to tell where a quotation ends because there's really no clear indicator of where it ends, like there is in English with the closed quotation marks. But here's the point. I think it makes the most sense, both logically and contextually, to see that Paul is continuing his rebuke of Peter here, right on into verse 15 and through the end of verse 21. Now, you can disagree with me on that if you want, but in my reading of the text, that makes the most sense. And so I'm going to preach based on that, that persuasion. And so what that shows us then is that as Paul continues to show the Galatians his rebuke of Peter here, he is also presenting to them the gospel itself. Because part of Paul's rebuke here is to remind Peter of the gospel that apparently he's forgotten. And so as we look at our passage here this morning, what I want us to see is that by telling the Galatians about his rebuke of Peter in Antioch, Paul is also rebuking the false teachers in Galatia. In other words, Paul's appeal to the gospel here rebukes both Peter in Antioch back then and also the false teachers in Galatia now. And the reason for that is because both Peter and the false teachers, the Judaizers, were in fact teaching the exact same lie. Now obviously, Peter was teaching that lie implicitly, And the Judaizers were teaching that lie explicitly. But regardless, it was still the same lie. And here's the lie. The lie was that faith alone in the person and work of Jesus the Messiah 
was not sufficient for salvation and therefore inclusion into the fellowship of the church. Instead, you also needed to add to belief in Jesus obedience to the Mosaic law, such as being circumcised and not eating certain foods and and all the rest. In other words, faith in Jesus wasn't enough. It wasn't sufficient because, yes, you needed to have faith in Jesus, but you also needed obedience to the law in order to be saved. That was the lie. And you see, what Paul is showing the Galatians here then is that the answer to this lie is the gospel. And so in order for us to see that very clearly this morning, I want us to explore the three ways that Paul appeals to the gospel in his rebuke of Peter. The three ways that Paul appeals to the gospel in his rebuke of Peter. We'll look at the gospel defined, the gospel debated, and the gospel defended. So first, let's look at the gospel defined. Look at verses 15 and 16 with me again. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now again, right off the bat, the first thing we need to keep in mind here is that Paul is still addressing Peter. He's still rebuking Peter for his hypocrisy. Because if you remember from last week, what we saw in verses 11 through 14 was that Paul had to rebuke Peter in Antioch. And the reason Paul had to rebuke him was because Peter, by his actions, was implicitly teaching a false gospel. And here's how Peter did that. When he first showed up in Antioch, Peter was eating with the Gentile Christians. He was fellowshipping them with them. He was breaking bread with them and enjoying their company. And you see, to an onlooking Jew, that would have been scandalous. Because according to the Old Testament cleanliness laws... A Jew would become unclean if they ate with a Gentile. But you see, Peter knew that he was free to do so because now that Jesus had come, those cleanliness laws didn't matter anymore because Jesus had abolished them. But then the trouble began when some Jews showed up from Jerusalem that Peter was afraid of. And so rather than continuing to eat with the Gentiles and be considered unclean by these Jews, Peter instead stopped eating and fellowshipping with the Gentiles. Not because he'd stopped believing the gospel, but because he was afraid of the Jews. But you see, Paul knew that this was wrong. And so that's why when he saw Peter separating himself from the Gentiles, Paul knew, sadly, that he had to rebuke Peter. And the reason he had to rebuke him was because this wasn't just a matter of who you sit at during lunchtime, who you sit with during lunchtime. This was a matter of the gospel message itself. Because you see, by his actions, what Peter was implicitly saying was that the Gentile Christians needed to both believe in Jesus and obey the Mosaic law in order to be saved And included in the fellowship. And you see that wasn't in line with the truth of the gospel. Instead it actually denied 
the truth of the gospel. And so that's why Paul says to Peter in verse 14, in front of everybody, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, what Paul is saying here is, listen, Peter, you've been living like a Gentile by eating with the Gentiles and by eating what the Gentiles eat, and you're free to do that. Now that Jesus has come, you are free to do so. But you see, Peter, you've also been terribly inconsistent because now that these Jews have come, these Jews that you're afraid of, you've retreated from the Gentile brothers that you once embraced. And by doing so, what you're implying is that the Gentiles need to live like Jews in order to be saved and in order to have fellowship with you. And you see, Peter, you can't do that because that's hypocrisy. And indeed, Peter, that's a flat-out denial of the very gospel that you confess. And so you see what Paul is doing here then in verse 15 is he's continuing his rebuke of Peter. Now, last week, we looked very briefly at the tail end of the sermon at verses 15 and 16. But this morning, I want us to take a bit of a closer look. And the reason for that is because in these verses, Paul defines the gospel for us. And so that's why he says in verse 15 that we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now remember, since Paul is still speaking to Peter here, when he says we, he's talking about the two of them, about Peter and Paul. And what he's saying here is that they have been privileged with being born Jews, of being born into the covenant community of God. And you see, that truly was a privilege. Because as a Jew, you lived in the community where God was making himself known in a saving way in Israel. And it was also a privilege because you were clean due to circumcision and you had access to the law of God. And you see, all of those were legitimate privileges that the Jews enjoyed. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that he and Peter were not Gentile sinners. Now by that, Paul does not mean that he and Peter weren't sinners in that they hadn't transgressed God's law and sinned against it, because they certainly had. Instead, what Paul means here is that they weren't like the Gentiles who were outside of the covenant. And they weren't like the Gentiles who were unclean and uncircumcised, and without the law, and thus distant from God. And so what Paul is saying here then is, that's not who we are, Peter, because we're Jews. And yet, Paul goes on to say in verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, the import of what Paul is saying here is deeply profound. But in order for us to to really grasp it and understand it, we're going to need to slow down and define some of the terms that Paul is using here. Because the fact of the matter is that they're not terms or phrases that we typically hear in everyday conversations. And so it's important that we take the time to define them. And so the first term we need to define is that word justified. 
And what's important for us to understand is that this word is forensic in nature. And so it's a, a legal term. It's a, it's a judicial term. In other words, it's the kind of word that you would expect to be used in a, in a courtroom setting. As a matter of fact, scholars tell us that if you look up this word's Hebrew counterpart in the Old Testament, what you'll find is that it's used by judges to declare righteous the innocent and condemned the wicked. And so you see, it's a, it's a declarative word. Because the role of a judge is simply to declare what is true of a person. That is, whether they are righteous or whether they are condemned. Now, the reason that's important for us to know is because some claim, and I'm thinking here particularly about Roman Catholics, that the word justify here means to make righteous. And the reason they think that is because it's based on a faulty translation of this word justify from Greek into Latin by St. Jerome. And so as a result, what they believe is that when God saves you, he infuses you with grace so that you are then able to do good works and thereby earn your justification. In other words, they believe that justification is God making you righteous by giving you the grace to do enough good works so that by your own merits, you are then able to enter into the very presence of God in heaven. Now, as Protestants, we contend that this is a false understanding of justification. Because justification is not God making us righteous, as the Roman Catholics teach. But instead, justification is God declaring us righteous. Because that's what the word actually means here. In other words, to use a courtroom analogy, it's the, the difference between a criminal sentence being shortened because they earned it by their own good behavior and a criminal being acquitted simply because of a, the judge's pronouncement. Now, there's certainly more to it than that, but that still captures the essence of the difference. It's the difference between an ongoing process and a one-time declaration. And so what we need to understand then is that when Paul uses the word justified here, he's talking about a one-time declaration and not an ongoing process. Now the next phrase that we need to define is that phrase, works of the law. What does Paul mean when he says in verse 16 that we know that a person is not justified by works of the law? Well, quite simply, that phrase, works of the law there, is a reference to anything that we do in order to be justified or declared righteous before God. More specifically, Paul is speaking here of the Mosaic law in its entirety. And so what that includes then are the Ten Commandments and all of the ceremonial laws like circumcision and what foods are clean or unclean and animal sacrifices and so on and so forth. And he's also including all of the civil laws. That is, all of the laws that dictated how Israel was to be governed as a nation state under God's direct kingship. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that all of that is included in the term works of the law. Because any obedience that we try to offer in accordance with the law of God is a work of the law. And so what Paul is saying here then is that no one, whether they're a Jew or a Gentile, 
can be declared righteous before God the judge based on their obedience to the law. Because there's nothing we can do, even if God has commanded it, by which we can justify ourselves before him. And just in case you have any doubts about that, Paul actually ends verse 16 by saying it once again, by works of the law, no one will be justified. But the question that we're probably all wondering is, but why? Why can no one be justified by works of the law? Well, the answer to that is really quite simple. No one can be justified by works of the law because God's law demands perfection. And so in order for God to declare us righteous, we have to obey the law perfectly. But you see, our problem is that we are incapable, we are unable to obey the law perfectly. But you see, our problem is Um, Now, the question that naturally follows, excuse me, from that is, well, then, is the law the problem? I mean, if we can't obey it, is the law the problem? And the answer to that is no. And the reason we know that is because of what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 7 and verse 12. He says, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And you see, the reason that's true of the law is because it's also true of God's character. In other words, the law is holy and righteous and good because God himself is holy and righteous and good. And so what that tells us then is that the problem isn't with the law. It's with us. We're the problem. Which is why Paul then goes on to say in verse 13 of Romans chapter 7, did that which is good then bring death to me? By No means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. In other words, the reason we can't be justified by works of the law is because we're sinful. We're fallen. And that doesn't mean that we just occasionally commit evil acts. Instead, it means that we ourselves are evil in the deepest recesses of our heart. And so as a result then, there is nothing that we can do, whether we're a Jew or a Gentile, to put ourselves into a right standing with God because all of our works are tainted by sin and therefore unacceptable to a holy God. And you see, brothers and sisters, this is exactly why the world hates the gospel. This is why the world can't stand to hear the good news, because before you hear the good news, what do you have to hear first? The bad news. And here's what the bad news is. The bad news is that God is perfect and holy and righteous, and yet we are sinful and unholy and unrighteous. And so rather than submitting to God and His Word, we rebel against Him. And we sin against Him. And you see, because God is a perfect judge for our sin and for our rebellion, He must punish us. Because His justice requires it. And so since we are, in fact, sinners who not only do sinful things, but are sinful at our very core, we must be punished. 
And you see, the only fit punishment for rebellion against an infinite, holy God is to suffer under the wrath of that infinite, holy God for all eternity. That's what we deserve for our sins. Because you see, God's verdict over us as judge is that we are condemned. And what Paul is saying here is that there is nothing that we can do. There's nothing that you and I can do to change that verdict. There are no works of the law that we can possibly do to change our status before God from condemned to righteous. There's nothing. And you see, the world hates that. Because they are incapable of believing that they are truly that bad, truly that fallen, truly that sinful. And so rather than yielding themselves to their only hope of salvation, sadly, instead, they reject God as judge, and they reject His law as binding, and therefore they deny their sin and their guilt and their need for a Savior. And so what we need to understand then is that the world is going to hate us for preaching this gospel. They're going to think we have completely lost it and that we're crazy as we tell them the gospel. But you see, that can't stop us because God has promised us that in His grace, His elect will respond to the gospel And furthermore, he has commanded us to preach unashamedly how all the lost, how all are lost in their sins and trespasses. And so let us not be negligent, brothers and sisters, in doing so out of fear of what the world will say to us or do to us. So that's the bad news, but Paul also shares with us the good news. And in order to understand what the good news is, We first need to define another phrase that Paul uses here. Because he says in verse 16 that we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, and now here's our phrase, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So then what does Paul mean here when he says through faith in Jesus Christ? Well, in order to answer that, it'll help us to keep in mind that that Paul is telling us here that there are only two ways for us to attempt to be justified before God. There's the way of grace, and there's the way of works. That's it. There's no middle way. There's no third way. And what we've seen already is that the way of works can't justify us, because we can't obey perfectly due to our sin. And so what Paul is saying here then is that it must be by grace. And you see, the way of grace is through faith. And do you know why that is? It's because faith isn't a work. It's simply receiving. It's simply believing or looking to or trusting in. As a matter of fact, even faith itself is something that we receive. And we know that because of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So you see, what Paul is saying here then is that both the grace and the faith are the gifts of God. It's not just one or the other. 
And the reason they are both a gift from God is because neither are a result of works so that no one can boast. But you see, our faith isn't just a gift unto itself because our faith also has an object and that object is none other than Jesus, the Messiah himself. Because by giving us the gift of faith, God has given us us the grace to look to Christ, to receive Christ. And so what that means then is that when we receive Christ, all that Christ has accomplished in his life and in his death and in his resurrection is then given to us. Because you see, the way God justifies us, declares us righteous, is based on the works of Christ. In other words, we are saved by works. But you see, it's not our works. Instead, we're saved by the works of Jesus, the Messiah, that he completed on our behalf. And you see, it has to be that way. It has to be based on somebody's works. Because if it's not, then it's just a a legal fiction. And the Roman Catholics are right. And so thanks be to God, our justification is based on the works of Jesus himself. And therefore, it's not a legal fiction. Instead, it is real. It is true in Christ. Because on the cross, God counted our sins as Jesus' sins. And so as a result, Jesus paid the penalty for all of the ways that you and I have violated God's law. And therefore, the wrath that we deserved was spent on Jesus in our place on the cross. But that's not all, because then in place of our righteousness, God counts the righteousness of Jesus as our own. In other words, God doesn't just declare us forgiven, but also righteous because you need both in order to be justified and you see the ground of all of that is the work of Jesus the Messiah and so what that means then is that God now sees us not only as if we'd never sinned but also as if we'd lived a perfect life in other words when he sees us He sees us as Jesus is because we are in Jesus. Now, I want you to just stop and reflect on that for a second. Because brothers and sisters, that should bring rest to our weary, beaten down souls. Because I know how easy it is for us to believe the lie that the work of Christ on our behalf is not sufficient and so we, we desperately, frantically look for something else. We look for something else to assure us that we're really, truly acceptable before God. And you know, it's almost always, almost always, some kind of law-keeping. But you see, it's, it's never enough. Because you can never measure up to perfection. But you see, Christ did. And He did so in your place. So rest in him and believe what he said when he was dying on that cross. My work for you so that you could be saved is finished. Because Christian, there's nothing else for you to add. 
And so what that means then is that we shouldn't be turned in on ourselves, constantly gazing and assessing our own doings. Instead, we should be turned outward to Christ and constantly be gazing at His doings, at what He has done. Because you see, while you and I are constantly changing every minute of every day, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so because He is the same, and because He is our justification, our standing before God is secure. It never changes, even though we do. And so we need to rest in that. But you see, what Paul's whole point here is that neither Jew nor Gentile can be justified by works of the law. Because as Psalm 143 verse 2 says, Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one living is righteous before you. Which proves yet again that even under the old covenant, no Jew was saved by his law keeping. Instead, he was only ever saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the coming Messiah alone. In other words, what Paul is saying here is, this is not a new gospel. It's always been this way. And Peter, you know that. Which is why he says in the rest of verse 16 that we also, Peter, have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So we've looked first at the gospel defined. Now secondly, let's look at the gospel debated. Look at verses 17 through 20 with me again. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now right from the start, we need to acknowledge that in these verses here, we have some some pretty difficult logic that we have to sort through. And so my hope is to, to make it as clear and easy to grasp as I possibly can. But to start with, we need to remember once again You're going to think I'm just like a clanging symbol here, but that Paul is still addressing Peter here. He's still rebuking Peter at Antioch. And so what Paul does here is he poses a a bit of a rhetorical question, as if he were anticipating that, that someone wants to debate with him. And so he's expecting someone to ask, well, Paul, if you and Peter are now like the Gentile sinners and that you don't seek justification through works of the law anymore, then aren't you sinning against God's law? And furthermore, Paul, if you're claiming that Jesus the Messiah taught you to do this, then isn't even Jesus a servant of sin? Now, my assumption here is that Paul is anticipating that the Judaizers 
would ask this question. Because essentially what they're charging him with is the sin of doing away with the law as a means of justification. And the reason they would call that a sin is because God himself is the one who gave that law. Therefore, the logical conclusion would be that if Jesus the Messiah had taught him to do away with the law, then Jesus himself would be a sinner who was leading Paul into sin. That's the logic here. And so how does Paul respond? Well, he continues the debate in verse 17 by saying what? Certainly not. In other words, there's not even a chance that Jesus is a servant of sin. But you see, Paul doesn't just leave it at that. He continues the debate in verse 18 by saying, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now what Paul is saying here is that for him, his past belief that one could be justified by works of the law has been torn down. Because even though he once believed in that false gospel, now that Jesus the Messiah had shown him the truth, he could never go back. And the reason for that is because if Paul did go back and try to rebuild his life on this false gospel, after Christ had shown him the true gospel, then Paul would be a transgressor. In other words, Paul has flipped the entire preceding argument on its head. Because the sinner is not the person who sees that the law is unnecessary for justification and then turns to Christ. Instead, the sinner is the person who, after having seen that the law is unnecessary, turns away from Christ and then returns yet again to the law for justification. That's who the transgressor is. And you know who fits that description in this scenario? Not Paul, but Peter. Peter does. And so Peter is the transgressor here. Because Peter is the one who is trying to rebuild the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile that first Christ tore down in his death. And then second, Peter and Paul tore down through their preaching. And so you see what Paul is doing here then is he is rebuking Peter for his sin. He's rebuking him for wavering and compromising on the gospel. Because just like Paul Peter had received the gospel directly from the Lord Jesus himself. And yet, even after that, Paul was still returning to the law out of the fear of man. And so you see what Paul is saying to Peter here then is, Peter, I will have none of it. Which is why Paul then goes on to say in verse 19, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. In other words, what Paul is saying here is, listen, Peter, I've died to the law as a means of justification. And so I haven't just temporarily turned away from it. No, no, no. I've died to it. Peter, I am dead to that way of seeking justification. And so there's no possibility of going back for me because I've died to that. But then here's the question. How did that happen for Paul? How did it happen that he died to the law? Well, Paul actually tells us here because he shows us two ways in which he died to the law. And the first way he tells us that he died to the law was through the law. That's what he says in verse 19. 
And what Paul means by that is that the law showed him that there was no way for him to be justified by works of the law. And Paul elaborates on that a little bit later in Galatians chapter 3. So turn with me, if you even have to turn there, to Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God, promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So you see what the law showed Paul then was that he was a sinner who could not obey the law. And the reason he was incapable of doing that was because of his guilt in Adam and his own sinful heart. But you see, in showing him this, the law also pointed him to his need of a Savior, the promised Messiah. In other words, by pointing out his sin and his inability to obey the law, the law also showed him how much he needed the Lord Jesus to save him. And Paul gives us a little even more detail about this in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 10. You don't have to turn there unless you want to, but listen to what Paul says there. Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 10. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. We've heard a phrase similar to that in our text this morning, haven't we? Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So again, what Paul is showing us here is that the law showed him his sin so clearly that he despaired of ever being justified by his own works. So that's the first way that Paul died to the law. And the second way that Paul tells us he died to the law is in verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now when Paul says here that I have been crucified with Christ... He's referring there to himself before he was a Christian. He's referring to himself as he was in Adam, in his spiritually dead and pre-regenerate state. And so what Paul is saying here then is that that old Paul in Adam was crucified with Christ. And so when Christ died on the cross, the old Paul died with him. In other words, what Paul is telling us here is that because he is united to Jesus, through his faith, what happened to Jesus on the cross also happened to Paul. And so what that means then is that because Jesus lived and died under the law, 
And Paul died right along with him. Paul is now dead to the law as a means of justification. But even more than that, because of his union with Jesus, when Jesus rose to newness of life, Paul also rose to newness of life as well. Which is why Paul can say in verse 20, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And so you see, what Paul understands here is that since the old Paul died with Christ, the new Paul now lives in Christ. And therefore, the new life that Paul now has is because Jesus lives within him by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And did you note how Paul says that he now lives that new life? How he lives this new life in Christ? He doesn't say that he lives it by being driven by the law. Because that's how the old Paul was. Instead, the new Paul in Christ is now driven in all of his life by his faith in Jesus, the Messiah. And I wonder, brothers and sisters, can you say the same thing about your life as Paul does? Can you say with Paul that the life you now live in the flesh, this life you live by faith in the Son of God? And you see, the reason I ask you that question is because I know from personal experience that our lives can so easily be driven by guilt or by law. Now, don't get me wrong. I thank God for conviction of sin. And I thank Him for His law. Because conviction shows me my need to be reconciled to God through repentance when I sin against Him. And His law guides me in how I can live a life of gratitude to Him. But you see, guilt and law can't be what drives us. It can't be what, what motivates us every day. Only the gospel can be what drives us, even as it drove the Apostle Paul here. And do you know what will help us in actually living that way? It's understanding just how incredibly personal the gospel is. Because did you notice how Paul ends verse 19? He says, the reason Jesus did this for me, the reason he gave himself up for me was why? Because he loved me. He loved me. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit from eternity past covenanted with one another to save you. Why? Because they loved you. And you see, they love you still. Do you see how incredibly personal this is? In other words, Jesus doesn't just tolerate you. And he doesn't just, just put up with you. No, he loves you. And you see, it's the knowledge of this love that should motivate everything that we do in our lives. Because his love is unlike any other love. And sadly, if you don't know his love, what will happen is you'll be looking for love in all the wrong places. Because you see, the only love that you were ultimately created for and therefore that you ultimately need is his love. Because no greater love has a man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends.
And that's exactly what Christ has done for you. So rest in that. Rejoice in that. And live every aspect of your life in light of that. Because you see, part of Paul's argument here is that if Peter hadn't lost sight of just how much Jesus loved him, even unto death, then Peter would have never abandoned the gospel. And he would have never vacillated on the truth. But you see, since he had forgotten Christ's love, he feared man more than he feared God. And the only antidote for that is to rest in the truth of Christ's love for us. That will make us as bold as lions. So we've looked at the gospel defined, we've looked at the gospel debated, and lastly, and very briefly, let's look at the gospel defended. Look at verse 21 with me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now with this final sentence here, Paul closes the argument that he began back in chapter 1 and verse 11, that his gospel didn't come from men, but from God. And what we've seen, I believe, is that Paul has made his case both clearly and compellingly to the Galatians. But what we also have in this verse here is Paul's final statement to Peter in his rebuke of him at Antioch. And what Paul is saying to Peter here is that Paul doesn't nullify the grace of God with his gospel. Instead, it's the false teachers who nullify the grace of God with their false gospel, which is really no gospel at all. And by extension, what Paul is also telling Peter here is that Peter himself is nullifying the grace of God implicitly by his actions. Because by his actions... Peter was actually supporting the Judaizers' gospel that works of the law are necessary for justification. And so that's why Paul is crystal clear here. He says, Peter, if righteousness could be attained through the law, then guess what? Jesus, the Messiah, came and died for nothing. Because if we could have saved ourselves, then we didn't need a Savior. And so Jesus wouldn't have needed to come. I mean, just think about it. How ridiculous is the notion of Christ's death if we could save ourselves? I mean, it would basically be as pointless as someone intentionally killing themselves for no other reason than to simply show their family how much they loved them. Look, I love you enough to kill myself. That would be ridiculous, right? Because if you really love them, then just stick around and take care of them for crying out loud. You don't need to kill yourself. But you see, if on the other hand, that exact same person died saving the life of one of their family members, then you would think, what a beautiful sacrifice. What a beautiful indication of their love For their family. And you see, that's Paul's whole point here. If we could save ourselves by our own good good works, then Christ's death was not only pointless and meaningless, it's actually ridiculous. 
But you see, if we can't save ourselves, then Christ's sacrifice means everything to us. Indeed, it's the most significant thing that's ever happened because he died so that we might live. And so what Paul is saying here then is that by standing for the gospel and not wavering in it, he is putting God's grace on display. And so he doesn't nullify the grace of God. Instead, he showcases it. And oh, brothers and sisters, that our lives might be a showcase of God's mercy as well. But you see, in order for that to happen, we must understand that the gospel is not Christ plus works. Instead, it's all of Christ. And it's only Christ. And so we have but to look to Him in faith for our justification. Because in Him, we have died to the law as a means of justification. Because when Christ died on that cross, we died right along with Him. And when Christ rose from the grave, we arose with Him as well. And so as a result... The life that we now live, while we wait for Jesus to return, we live by faith in Him. Not driven by the law, but driven by the gospel. And so may God be pleased to grant to us, brothers and sisters, in all of our life, to be compelled by the love of Christ, our Savior, who loved us and gave Himself for us. And as we do so, may our song ever be nothing, either great or small, nothing, sinner, no. Jesus died and paid it all long, long ago. It is finished. Yes, indeed, finished every jot. Sinner, this is all you need. Tell me, is it not? When he from his lofty throne stooped to do and die, everything was fully done. Hearken to his cry. Weary, working, burdened one, wherefore toil you so? Cease your doing. All was done long, long ago. Till to Jesus' work you cling. By a simple faith, doing is a deadly thing. Doing ends in death. Cast your deadly doing down. Down at Jesus' feet. Stand in Him, in Him alone. Gloriously complete. Let's pray. Gracious gracious Heavenly Father, we're so incredibly thankful for the fact that you have so clearly defined the gospel for us in your word. We're thankful that you used the Apostle Paul to transmit that to us through sacred scripture. And so we're thankful for the reminder this morning, Father, the reminder that we need every single day of our lives that our standing before you, our justification and righteousness before you is not based on our works of the law, 
But instead, it's based on the works of Christ and Christ alone. And so it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we are justified. Father, give us the grace to live in light of that incredible truth. And give us the boldness, because we're looking to you in faith, to proclaim your gospel here in Bakersfield and to the ends of the earth. Father, may we not be afraid to enter into debate and show that the gospel is indeed the good news. And Father, may we also not be afraid to defend the gospel, to lay down our lives, even as Paul was willing to do here, to to risk losing his friendships with Peter and Barnabas and all of the other Jewish Christians in Antioch so that he could stand for the truth. Because in doing so, he was putting your grace on display. And oh, Father, may we put your grace on display in our lives as well as we rest in your love for us and the finished work of Christ. May we be able to say that we are only alive because we are in Christ and we are dead to works of the law because we have died to them in Christ. Father, we love you and we're thankful and amazed at the fact that you love us. And so we ask now that you would strengthen us to worship you in spirit and in truth, that you might be honored. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.